0: This season of Out Alive is brought to you by Garmin. Stay tuned to the end of the show where you'll hear this bonus survival story.
1: I couldn't walk more than 10 steps without collapsing. I was in a really bad spot because I had no cell service. I, I know it's a life-threatening condition, and I don't, I don't think I would have made it through the night in the, in the condition I was in.
0: As outdoor explorers... We like to think we're prepared for the worst. We carry bear spray in bear country. We check flash flood conditions before going canyoneering. We know the safest position to assume in a lightning storm. But what about those hazards we simply can't see coming? Those freak accidents that are so unpredictable, there's nothing we can do to avoid them, but so rare that we take our chances against them anyway. We roll the dice every time we step outside because the rewards are well worth the risks. All we can hope for is that if our luck does run out, we have the grit, the mental fortitude, and the help to make it out Alive.
1: I made a decision to survive. You're in that survival mode. The the idea of dying wasn't in my head.
0: I knew immediately it was a worst-case scenario. I was in a fight-for-my-life situation. Whenever
1: you walk out on
2: these trails, you're in their house.
0: I'm Louisa Albanese, and you're listening to Out Alive by Backpacker. In each episode of this podcast, we'll bring you real stories of real people who survived the unsurvivable. I saw the rope
3: zip through the rappel ring, and I couldn't do anything.
0: Learn what went wrong, what went right, and how you can escape if the worst-case scenario happens to you.
3: There is no
1: way we would find anybody alive.
0: In the summer of 2013, 54-year-old Bill White of Spencer, Wisconsin, and his two longtime adventure partners, Kevin and David, set their sights on a summer trip to climb the Middle Teton in Grand Teton National Park.
3: We we're just blessed with friends that shared the same interests. Um, we like to ski, bike, kayak, run, snowshoe, camp, and uh, mountain climb. Um, we had climbed Mount Hood and successfully and was looking for another adventure, so we thought about doing the uh, the Grand and the Tetons. I'm sure these guys could have done it, but I talked them into doing the Middle Teton, which is not a difficult climb at all. It's a trail going up to the top. It's It's usually very uh, accessible and easy.
0: At almost 13,000 feet, the Middle Teton is the third highest peak in the Tetons. It's typically accessed from the Lupine Meadows Canyon Trailhead through the South Fork of Garnet Canyon. The Park Service describes this 13 mile out and back as strenuous.
3: We did a lot of training for this and a lot of workouts, a lot of backpacking. Workouts to get in shape. So, we did a road trip Friday afternoon and uh, we set up our base camp at Coulter Bay. On Sunday, we biked Jenny Lake Ranger Station, we registered, picked up our backcountry camping permits and bear canisters, and then Monday morning we headed for the trailhead again to do the Middle Teton. We hiked up to about 10,000 feet, we set up a temporary camp, Uh, we went to bed early. We noticed that night there was a little rain and some thunderstorms. And then about eight o'clock in the morning, we uh, got up and uh, put on our day packs and attempted the summit.
0: This is Phil's friend and adventure partner, David Williamson.
4: The weather was, I think, a perfect bluebird day. I mean, it was nice and sunny, and we were climbing in t-shirts and pants and boots. I mean, it was set out to be a perfect day
0: the weather was still perfectly clear when the group heard a rumble overhead. Suddenly, rocks began to rain down right on top of them.
3: About an hour into it, about 9 o'clock, um, we noticed uh, some uh, golf balls, and pebbles starting coming down, and then they started getting into uh, bowling ball size and much bigger. There was two
4: rocks, like one little one where it was like the, like Phil said, the marbles and golf balls and stuff like that. We each ran our own direction. And after a period of time, it stopped and we kind of got together and discussed what that was. And it's, the sound was like a uh, thunder and then it sounded like a jet taking off and then the rocks came and we were sitting there discussing it. And then like within a minute, it happened again. And so then we all ran back to our original hiding places where we all felt secure and Kevin and I went one direction and Phil jumped into this hole where he had been. And as I was watching the rocks roll down, listening to all this thunder and I I could see that these rocks were rolling right over the direction where Phil was and I thought Phil was dead. I didn't know how he could have lived with the size of the rock that rolled over him and I you know there I didn't think we'd be able to uncover him I thought when we did we would find parts of him amputated I guess I I figured there was some some really bad things to come I was probably about I'm guessing 30 40 yards from where Phil was but. Where I was was kind of like a side. I was out of the path of destruction, but there was rocks coming over the top of the, the ledge that I was up against. And there was rocks that was coming over the top and was landing at my feet right in front of me. Now any one of those rocks could have hit me on the head and they could have
3: been me laying there.
0: This is Phil.
3: Yeah, I was kind of in a chair position, tucked in as far as I could behind this larger, larger rock. I brought my left arm up to protect my head from some of the rocks, and I could just feel my, my arm bend 45 degrees towards me. 85% of the rocks went over my head and down, down the valley. Uh, and then it started to back fill in, fill in, and fill in. And when I look back at it, it's probably a good thing because being buried by the small rocks I was somewhat protected by the larger rocks. And then bang, just like that. It was just super, super quiet and dusty.
0: Here's David Williamson again.
3: The, the
4: rock slides lasted for about a minute and 15 seconds. And then you there was just this fog of heavy rock dust that was moving down the valley just like fog across the lake, but it was going down the valley just from the vacuum that was created by the all these rocks going downhill.
3: There was such a contrast between the slide and the noise, the audible noise from the slide, and then, wow, just silent. You didn't hear
4: your normal sounds, you know, like wind or birds singing or anything like that, it
3: was just quiet. I just felt like almost like in a coffin or closed
4: in. And I just had that, that location imprinted in my mind where he was because all these huge rocks were rolling over the top of him. So
3: we had a pretty good area, like say the size of a house where he was I hollered, hey, you guys okay? And I go, yeah. And they say, how about you? And I said, oh, no, not, not really. So then it was just a matter of locating him and digging down.
4: And uh, we found his gloved hand, and that meant that he was buried over the top of his head in rocks. So Kevin and I started digging and just kept digging down until we uncovered him. And basically, you know, the rocks were, I'm going to say, the size of bowling balls to the size of... End tables, and luckily they were manageable size that we could move them. Not that they were the size of an automobile or bigger, which there were some of those that rolled over them. I took a break just because the rocks were big and heavy. My forearms were scraped up and bleeding them their own just from lifting the rocks out. But I took a break and I looked down the hill, and the rocks were just bright red with blood that from the rocks that we had uncovered from Phil. And when I looked at him, he, his entire head was covered in blood, kind of going around his eyes and the nose and his mouth. And it was kind of eerie that I said I was going to get him out, but in the back of my mind, I wasn't sure I was going to get him out.
3: When they started digging me out, it was kind of kind difficult because they started digging the rocks that were right next to me, but then the rocks were just caving in. Once the rocks were mo- removed from around me, I noticed, like again, the head laceration, which wasn't much, the, lo- the amputation of the finger, and I knew my arm was definitely broke. I looked down, and, and once they got me, the rocks off of me, and I could look down on my legs, it kind of, Freaked me out knowing that uh, it was blood and the bones were sticking out. I could see one leg was pointing in one direction and the other leg was pointing in the other direction. But the blood was not the arterial blood. That was such a big thing and it was so close that it could have been arterial blood and that wouldn't have been good. You know, there was a little bit of
4: an adrenaline high there to move some of the size of the rocks that we did. I know they were, there were some big ones. I don't think I'd be able to lift them today. To dig them out was less than a half an hour. And after getting them dug out, then I ran down to the meadows to call for help or find somebody, because my cell phone did not have a signal. And that's where I found this guy or met this guy that had a spot
0: A spot is a satellite communication device that notifies emergency responders of your GPS location with the touch of a button.
4: It was still wrapped up in a new foil. He wasn't sure how to use it, and I didn't know how to use it, but it was just the activation button. And I said, how do you know that it's working now? And he said, I I don't. And I didn't trust that, so I just continued running down the trail.
2: That particular event, we had spot activations both in the area where Philip was actually found and completely erroneous areas miles away.
0: This is Scott Gunther, Jenny Lake District Ranger in Grand Teton National Park. Scott was directly involved in Phil's rescue.
2: At that point in time, spot device didn't, the ones that we were familiar with at least were not uh, two-way communication devices. It was basically people could send SOS and uh, and then through the rescue coordinating centers, uh, those would get to us and we would get a GPS location, but we wouldn't necessarily get any other information. Relatively early on, after the event happened, we did get um, a phone communication that something bad had happened, probably rockfall um, in Garnet Canyon, where Philip was.
4: It was probably about a mile from the top down to where I first met the, another group of hikers coming up that had a cell phone that had a signal. From there, we called the, the ranger station and summoned the, the rescue. And at that time, they knew that there was something happening on the hill from the activation of the spot, but they didn't know exactly where it was in detail, like you know where what part of the valley it was.
2: Our process is that the Jane Lake climbing rangers have access to um, a helicopter during the summertime, Uh, we were able to order that rescue aircraft and then fly people to the accident site. Um, When the call came in early on, I remember that uh, he was reported as being kind of buried in rocks. And so we were throwing in tools that we normally wouldn't, like pry bars and jacks and things that it would take to move um, big chunks of rock, because we, we were under the impression that we might have to do that when we got there. Fortunately, when we were able to fly over that scene, uh, land nearby, by the time our rescuers got on scene, they were able to confirm that the majority of the rock that was on Philip had been removed, and that at this point, we were just dealing with a severely um, injured patient. So we flew a litter via short-haul technique, which is a... uh, technique where you have a fixed length of line attached to the bottom of a helicopter and on the end of that line you can clip rescuers, patients, or equipment that you may need to deliver to a scene and the value of that tool obviously is in a place where it's difficult to land or you may not even have the ability to land. You can go right to a scene and deliver that um, whatever's on the end of that line to that scene and so uh, though our rescuers hike to the scene from the landing zone, the rest of the equipment came in at the end of that short-haul line was delivered to the accident site.
0: Meanwhile, Phil was anxiously waiting for help to arrive.
3: I was getting a little impatient, um, kind of going into shock, wondering, uh, are they coming? Are they coming? Are they coming? And then when I did see that helicopter, I thought, oh, hey, things might be all right. But it was a it was kind of a different feeling when I seen the helicopter make a circle and leave I thought oh boy this doesn't look good but like I we like they said the helicopter land wasn't able to land where I was they had to land in a, in a different area and then the rescuers and the rangers hike up to me with the wire basket waiting for the rescuers to come up I know a couple of the fellas Went went about maybe 20 yards from where I was. And they said, man, is Phil going to make it? And they go, boy, I think so. I'm not really sure. And I said, I can hear you guys.
0: Remember, Phil has two open or compound fractures on each of his legs with bone exposed in addition to a broken arm, head laceration, and crushed finger.
2: You could just tell that. I mean, this is one of the more severely traumatized patients uh, that i've seen in the tetons in quite some time because philip is severely injured and we knew that early on we also ordered an air ambulance um to lupe meadows as well so that air ambulance was there waiting in the back country the thing we can't treat would be does he have internal bleeding um that we don't know about and so now we're racing that clock of if he's got an internal bleed the only thing that can fix that is Um, definitive care at a hospital where they can do surgery. And uh, and at that point, our job is just, let's get him to definitive care as quickly as possible.
3: They got me out and they said it's gonna be kind of painful when they put the strap around my uh, compound fracture, a compound fracture of the femur and a compound fracture of uh, tibia, one on one leg, one on the other leg. They put me in the wire basket. um, They said this is gonna hurt when they strap you in and that probably was a 10 on the pain scale. I did let out a holler. I mean, he flew me down to the meadows.
2: When Philip came out, um, we took him off into that short haul line. Uh, There was an additional assessment with advanced medical care and the flight team from that air ambulance. And uh, we loaded him in that air ambulance and he was extracted to definitive care at a hospital. it's pretty rare that we have these big um rock slide events like this one um that happened to philip and so uh we've had a couple of reports of these we definitely had loose slopes or people have slid aways and screamed this one that happened to philip was was pretty anomalous it's it's pretty rare that um that we have the event and it's even certainly much more rare that uh somebody's in the middle of it when it
4: happens. Afterwards, what we found out or what we were told why it happened, cause we were asked, you know, did we do something wrong? Did we go the wrong way or whatever? And they said that just because of the a higher amount of rainfall, that the water gets in between the rocks and causes a hydraulic action to separate the portion of the rocks away from the, the remaining wall. And just from it, that that hydraulic pressure causes the portion of the rock wall to break off. So the the cause of this, I guess, was a higher amount of rainfall in the days or weeks preceding our climb.
2: Philip was uh, going up to do a route on on the middle Teton. I believe they were headed up to the southwest couloir. And while his party was slightly off what I would call the traditional approach route to that, um, for the most part, like we a lot of our people that we rescue, you can say that there was a, one of the contributing factors quite often is some kind of insufficient preparation and error in judgment. One of those things quite often fall into the contributing factors. With In Phillip's case, like he's one of the few accidents that we actually have happened that I would say this was just a really objective event that was rockfall. Um, the, there had been some recent activity in that area, um, rockfall activity from that zone. Um, but uh, other than that, it was, you know, in my mind, just kind of really bad luck for Philip.
0: So even though this was really a fluke, extraordinarily bad luck, is there anything that hikers can do to understand or minimize the risk of being in a situation like this?
2: Be prepared, educate yourself as much as possible, be fit enough to do the um, activity that you're planning on doing, show good judgment, carry the things that you need, be prepared for something to happen that you didn't expect.
0: Phil suffered extensive physical injuries, and in many ways, getting rescued was just the beginning of his ordeal.
3: They, did, they called my wife, she better you better come out and, and see Phil. Uh, I had my first surgery on my legs uh, the first night, and then they did the second surgery on Wednesday morning. Um, that's when I kind of woke up and I saw my wife and uh, who also came out with my brother, Joe, to help her with uh, the flying experience of uh, going out west. I was on a surgical floor uh, for about three or four days. Then I was transferred to the uh, rehab unit at the Idaho Hospital. And that's where they kind of started the physical therapy and, and all my mini dressing changes. Anyway, in about six weeks, I made it home. I continued therapy at the Marshall Clinic Health System. And I was off work for about six months.
0: Getting pummeled by boulders would be enough to make most 54-year-olds renounce hiking, but not Phil White.
3: Um, I'm back to running uh, or jogging, (laughs) biking, kayaking, camping, hiking. Some of the things that we have done since my injury is we hiked part of the Appalachian Trail last weekend. We did the Ice Age Trail and woke up with an inch and a half of snow on our tents. So we're kind of back into the swing of things. We just look forward, look forward to getting together and doing something out outside, um, outdoors. Um, there's just something about having that cup of coffee in the morning and brushing that inch and a half of snow off your tent and um, going for a walk in, walk in the outdoors. It's kind of my zen, my uh, meditation. Phil's always
4: been our... Bucket list person. I'm usually just a, a follower, and it, it's nice to have him back planning things again because he does. He, he's great at planning and researching, and basically, I don't know about Kevin, but for myself, I just show up and enjoy the
3: enjoy the bucket list.
0: Phil walked away from his ordeal with more than a few life lessons.
3: Somebody asked if I cried very much during this whole experience. Well, um, 5% of my tears were, why me? But 95% of my tears were the overwhelming support and prayers from friends, family, co-workers, neighbors, and strangers. I mean, I had people give me rides to therapy, um, did my yard work, sent me, brought me meals. I'll, I'll never, ever forget that. Every day is a gift. You don't know what tomorrow brings. Work hard, play hard, make new friends, keep the friends you have, and get back the friends you may have lost. People say, man, you were in the wrong place at the wrong time, and when I think about it, no, I was in the right place at the right time with the right people.
0: This season of Out Alive is brought to you by Garmin. Together, we bring you a bonus survival story from someone who made it out alive thanks to their Garmin inReach satellite device. Dwayne Conan was 165 miles into a rugged 206-mile ultramarathon when he suddenly was overcome with pain, dizziness, and vomiting. Here's Dwayne to share his story.
1: I ran the Bigfoot 200, in the uh, Cascade to Washington and uh, essentially goes from Mount St. Helens um, past Mount Adams. And uh, I was 71 hours into the race. I couldn't uh, go to the bathroom anymore. And I collapsed and my my bladder started convulsing and uh, it immediately just put me into a, a ton of pain. And I couldn't walk more than 10 steps without collapsing and having to to drop to my knees. And then it would pass for a little bit and I could lay down and rest. But it would still be throbbing and I'd still be in a lot of pain. And um, I was in a really bad spot because I had no cell service. Um, I was six miles from the last day station on these beat up trails that were nothing more than game trails. I was just laying there in pain and the only thing I could think of was uh, to give my pacer who was with me my my, uh, Garmin inReach Um, and he pushed the SOS button and was able to communicate directly with their their people and also with my wife. And so they right away let um, search and rescue services know and um, they uh, sent out a medic and the race medic got to me after eight hours. Eventually a Black Hawk helicopter got to me um, four hours later and dropped a medic down and lifted me out of there and took me to the emergency room and there they, they, they patched me up and I was I was okay. The best thing was for, for my peace of mind was knowing that there was somebody that knew I was in trouble and knowing that that they were working the problem. And also having the comfort of being able to text my wife and talk to her made just made a huge difference just to have that, that contact with the outside world. You know, if I wouldn't have been uh, rescued by the helicopter at that time, I, I would have had to spend all night there. I, I know it's a life-threatening condition, and I don't I don't think I would have made it through the night in the, in the condition I was in. So I was definitely thankful that um, I had the, the inReach with me.
0: I'm Backpacker Skills Editor Zoe Gates, and here's a safety tip from Garmin. Incidents on the trail can range from inconvenient to disastrous. So how do you know when you can trigger an SOS? Can you walk back to your car or wait out the storm? If so, don't push that call button. But if your life or safety are immediately at risk, you can use your satellite communicator to send a message to a loved one. If danger is imminent and you're unable to send a message, activate an SOS. This episode of Out Alive was produced by me, Louisa Albanese, along with Zoe Gates. Story editing and sound design was by Wild Acorns Media. Our script writer is Casey Lyons. This episode was mixed by Jason McDaniel from Electric Audio Inc. Thank you to Phil White, David Williamson, Kevin Nowak, and Scott Gunther for sharing your stories and perspectives. If you've enjoyed this episode of Out Alive, please subscribe and leave us a review.